And we're live, friends from around the world. Great debate. Where both sides look to defeat one another, rather, a debate where both sides come together to find common ground. Today, an exciting one. Two Jews named Zach. One a Zionist, the other an anti Zionist. Besides the externalities of their similarities, can we find more common ground in today's session? That's going to be the goal. Let's find out. Um, before we get started, a quick shout out to our Patreon visionary members. We have Trivium Energy PTYLTD, SOG Cannabis, Max Marine, Geffen Posner, Adam Becker, Maya, and our newest visionary member, Kimberly. Welcome to the club, Kimberly. I really appreciate the support. And our one and only champion member, Raja. It's great to have you all here with us. As always, the support is greatly appreciated and really helps us do what we do, and that's reconcile between people and conflict. I am hearing a little bit of an echo. Do one of you have uh, the the YouTube open? Because if you do, no? Okay, interesting. As you can see, I'm here in the beautiful Herzliya Marina. We're going to touch on Zionism versus anti-Zionism, the current status quo, potential solutions uh, forward. Both Zach Foster and Zach Corner are people who are very intelligent, whose views I respect tremendously. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have them both here uh, for this discussion. A little bit more about them. To my top left, Zachary Foster. He completed his PhD in Near Eastern Studies at Princeton. His dissertation was titled The Invention of Palestine. He's also director of product at academia.edu. To my top, top right, Zach Karner. He is a philosopher of Zionism and anti-Semitism. He served in the IDF as an infantryman, then spent a number of years at various Talmudic academies in Jerusalem. He is the author of the eventually forthcoming Anti-Semitism of Love, New Ideas of the Israel-Palestine Conflict. Zach and Zach, it's great to have you both here. Can you all hear me? Because uh, I'm hearing a little echo. Yeah, I'm getting people well, are light echo. Don't know what, what that is, but we'll figure it out. Anyway, so... We're going to start by each uh, guest explaining their position on Zionism versus anti-Zionism. Zach Foster, you'll go first. The floor is yours. Great. Adar, thanks so much for having us on. And before uh, explaining why I'm an anti-Zionist, I just want to make a quick point about Zionism, which is that, in my opinion, the problem in Israel-Palestine is not Zionism. If all 13 million people between the river and the sea were Zionists, or if all 13 million people were anti-Zionists, you'd still have 90% of people in Gaza without safe drinking water and five and a half million Palestinians who in the West Bank who don't have the right to vote. You'd still have what the world's leading human rights organization, Human Rights Watch, recently called Jewish domination or Jewish supremacy, i.e. apartheid. But to the academic question of Zionism, look, I am an academic. I, I love academic topics. Um, why, I, why am I an anti-Zionist? So uh, I'm against all ideologies that believe that ethnic or religious or linguistic or political groups have inherent or innate self-determination rights. I'm against all political movements, all political ideologies that hold that states ought to serve the interest of a single religious, ethnic, or linguistic group. I support political movements and political ideologies that include all religious, all linguistic, all ethnic groups. 
And, and so I guess that already makes me an anti-Zionist because Zionism is all about Jewish self-determination and Jewish control. And so I'm an anti-Zionist for the same reason I'm against the Hutu power movement in Rwanda or the Communist Party in China or the white nationalists in the U.S. or the national rally movement in France or Sunni domination over Shia in Bahrain or the domination of Arab nationalists in Sudan or of the Alawite supremacy in Syria. Or, of course, we can stick with Israel-Palestine itself, the Palestinian Islamist ideology in, Ga- in Gaza, i.e. Hamas. So all of these political ideologies, all these political movements hold that states should act as vehicles for the interests of a single group. And I think that has disastrous consequences wherever and whenever people believe that. I think Arabs and Nubians should have the same rights in Sudan. I think Hutus and Tutsis should have the same political rights in Rwanda. Whites and blacks should have the same political rights in the United States. Jews and Palestinians should have the same rights in Israel and Palestine. Now, just just one or two last thoughts here before I pass the mic over to you, Zach, which is that you might try and say that Jewish self-determination doesn't necessarily entail Jewish domination. Um, But let me ask you this. Uh, why, why did soldiers of the state of Israel in the first few years after statehood shoot uh, at Palestinian refugees trying to return to their homes in 1949, in 1950, in 1951, and in 1952? You had 10 to 15,000 Palestinians who were recently made refugees by a war trying to return to their home every year for the first six, seven years after the, the establishment of the state of Israel. And Israel shot at them when they were trying to return. Why is that? Would Israel have shot at them if they were Jewish? I mean, suppose they were Jewish. Suppose there were Jewish refugees fleeing Europe after World War II. Would Israel have shot live ammunition at them as they tried to enter the country? No, of course not. It's not even a counterfactual question. They they did try to enter the country, and they were welcome. They were given free housing and a passport, and and they were welcome to to uh, to enter Israel. And so. I think whenever you have a state that is set up to serve the interests of just a single ethnic, linguistic, religious group, other groups necessarily get discriminated against. Uh, In in some cases, they're not allowed to bring their spouse into the country, or they're not allowed to buy land from the JNF, or they're not allowed to move into an apartment, or they're not allowed to move into a building, or they're not allowed to move into one of 900 towns in Israel that exclude non-Jews, or they're discriminated against at the airport or targeted by the police, or they face excessive violence and protests. None of these things are coincidences. They're all, they all stem from the underlying problem with, with, of the state, which is that it was set up to serve the interests of Jews above all else. Thank you, uh, Zach. Be- before we continue, can, the, can chat tell me, is my mic better now? Can you hear me better? Is the echo gone? Please let me know in chat. Thank you, Zach Foster. Zach Corner, all you. I uh, oh, Zach, sorry, I, I muted you just to here. You're on. Oh, good. Okay, I don't want to, anybody to think I'm running away from those questions. I just prepared my own thing, so I'm going to get into that, and I'm going to address the all the difficulties, all the kashas that my uh, debate partner Zach Foster brought up, and I thank him for being here. I also want to thank Adar. Uh, and the Solhar Discord community. And and I've looked at a lot of the comments on these videos, and I'm not just saying this tongue-in-cheek. It's absolutely the best comments of any videos I've seen on YouTube. Uh, Really great engagement. I hope that continues here. Okay, so let's get started. Zionism is the belief that the state of Israel should continue to exist. Anti-Zionism is the belief that the state of Israel should cease to exist. And just as a quick caveat, I use the words Zionism and State of Israel interchangeably. When I say Zionism, I mean the State of Israel. And when I say the State of Israel, I mean Zionism. 
There are two types of Zionism. The first justifies Zionism in terms of Jewish national rights. This is a very common argument. It is the main defense offered by classical Hasbara. The argument goes something like this. The Jewish people, like all other nations, have the right to self-determination. And since the Jewish people have the right to self-determination, Israel has the right to exist. And I want to surprise the audience by saying that if Zionism depended on Jewish national rights, I would be sitting over there, or maybe over there. I would be an anti-Zionist. Jews do not have the right to self-determination because no nation has the right to self-determination. Nations do not have rights. Only human beings do. If Zionism is just, if Zionism is legitimate, then Zionism must justify itself in terms of Jewish human rights. And I want to sharpen this idea of national rights. Now, there is such a thing as Jewish national rights. National rights are a genuine human pursuit. They are a sincere human value. But when Jewish national rights collide with Palestinian human rights, Jewish national rights must yield. I like to say that Genesis comes before Exodus. Those are the first two books of the Torah. Uh, the first part of Genesis, the first 11 chapters at least, are about human beings. Exodus is about the creation of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Genesis comes before Exodus means that human rights always beats national rights in a head-to-head -head contest. There's an idea that Zionism, in order for Zionism to be just, it must be tied to a positive justification. Rudy Roshman, by the way, ha hashtag free Rudy, says that Zionism is about Jewish cultural and national revival. But this argument doesn't work because Palestinian human rights come first. The Zionist thinker Daniel Gordas says that Zionism is about producing profound works of literature and moving pieces of music. And I'm sorry to sound like that alarm clock going off on Shabbos that you forgot about, but I, I just can't get over Palestinian human rights. And then there's Yishai Fleischer, the settler reader, the settler leader. He points to the Bible and our history, biblical rights, historical rights. Again, these are legitimate human values, genuine human aspirations, but Palestinian human rights defeat them. There simply is no positive justification for an ethnostate. There is no naked, a priori, justification for an ethnostate. The only justification for an ethnostate is another ethnostate. And this is the paradox of Zionism. It is the determination of the Palestinians that saves the self-determination of the Jews. I've read the Palestinians, and they're crystal clear in their writings, their movement, their charters, their polls, and their podcasts, that they desire nothing less than a Palestinian ethnostate. And there is no reason to prefer one ethnostate to another. Zionism is just in light of its alternative. The central claim of Palestinian anti-Zionism is that Israel is a settler colonial society. Society being the operative word. This is an extremely grave charge. It is a far graver charge than human rights violations. It is a far graver charge than apartheid or even genocide. How, Kate Saad, for human rights violations, apartheid and genocide are crimes of doing. And since they are crimes of doing, a country, a society, or a people 
can undo them. But settler colonialism can never be undone because settler colonialism is a crime of being. It is a mark of Cain, a scarlet letter, the circumcision of sin burned into the flesh of every one of the seven million Jews who live here. The accusation of settler colonialism does not differentiate between general and Girl Scout, between special forces and students in special education. It is a totalizing, essentializing, and collectivizing claim. There is a misconception that Palestinian anti-Zionism only runs two tiers deep, that there are Palestinians who criticize Zionist policies, and there are Palestinians that criticize the existence of a Zionist state. In fact, Palestinian anti-Zionism goes much deeper than this. It is not two, but three tiers. Palestinians claim that the policies of the Zionist state are illegitimate. Palestinians claim that the existence of the Zionist state is illegitimate. Palestinians claim that the existence of the Zionist society is illegitimate. The accusation of settler colonialism does not discriminate between the state and the society. A society whose presence is held to be illegitimate is one that is exposed to obvious danger. Therefore, the Zionist state, Israel, is required to ensure security for the Zionist society. The existence of the state of Israel is a matter of human rights. The state of Israel is therefore a human being, not like a human being, not as a human being. The state of Israel, if we're talking morals, if we're talking justice, is a human being. I have one more point. I know I've gone on a little long. I promise it's worth it. Zionism is supposed to be about Jewish independence, and yet the justice of Zionism is dependent on the Palestinians. It is the Palestinians who rescue Zionism from the brink of immorality. In the language of Jewish mysticism, in the language of the Kabbalah, one can say that the Palestinians are akin to the divine aspect, the Sphira of Malchut. They are the final stage in the unfolding of Jewish peoplehood. Palestinians rescue the Jewish state project. They guard secular Jewry by refusing social intercourse and intermarriage. They enable us to fulfill our divine vocations. The nations of the world come to Israel and they tell us very clearly, they don't want our literature. They don't want our music. They don't want our high technology. They don't want our watercolor paintings. The nations of the world want our Torah. They want our moral leadership. Do we provide it to them? Absolutely not. We're not even close. But the Palestinians put the focus on the moral dimension of the conflict. And that is the Jewish people's bread and butter. So it is for these services, saving Zionism, saving secular Jewry, centering the conflict on justice, that we Zionists owe the Palestinians our gratitude. And more than that, we owe them a state that spans the West Bank, Gaza, with a capital in East Jerusalem. Thank you for bearing with me for that. Thanks, Zach. Some insightful stuff there. Thank you very um, much. Zach, over to you now. It's really free-for-all dialogue session back and forth. Yeah, that was that was great, Zach. Th thanks a lot for sharing those thoughts. I think I will respond to, to just one point. I mean, you made a lot of points there, but I'll respond to one point you made, which is that um, if Palestinians, if majority of Palestinians want a Palestinian state, isn't it natural, isn't it logical then that we should say Jews should also have a state? Um, interesting point. But I think uh, th this ignores the reality in the ground, which is that 
regardless of what people on the ground want, there is one and only one state between the river and the sea. Okay, and that state is the state of Israel. And I would what I would say about that state is that it has defined something like nine tiers of status. You could call them um, castes, call them tiers of human beings. But basically, you have at the very top of this uh, nine tier system, you have Jewish citizens of Israel. At the second tier below them, you have Palestinian citizens citizens of Israel. Then you have unrecognized Palestinian citizens of Israel, primarily the Bedouin in the in the Nakba or the Negev. Then you have Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem who are not citizens of Israel for the most part. Then you have Area A West Bank Palestinians who are not citizens, Area B West Bank Palestinians, Area C West Bank Palestinians, Palestinian residents of the Seam Zone in the West Bank who are also not citizens of Israel. And then you have Gaza Palestinians. Now, regardless of um, and of course, tiers two through eight are um, essentially second, third, fourth, and ninth class citizens. Um, and Jews are sitting at the very top of this uh, nine tier system. And regardless of what Palestinians want and regardless of what Jews want, that system is um, only entrenching itself. It is only becoming more solidified with every, I mean, time is really the, the thing that Israel forgets is working against itself, right? Because the longer, the longer the occupation lasts, the, um, the more entrenched it becomes, the more permanent it becomes. And so what we have here is a situation in which, yes, some Jews, uh, Jews want self-rule for Jews, Palestinians want self-rule for Palestinians, but the reality is that there's one state, and that state uh, privileges Jews, and it doesn't really matter what anyone on the ground wants. What matters is that all people living between the river and the sea have equal rights, have the right to vote for the government that represents them, have a right to move about freely, live where they want, uh, go, go to the beach on Shabbat or go to the beach on Sunday. They have, want to travel abroad, see the world. They want to work freely. They want to have the right to have a job in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem or Ramallah or Nablus or Gaza. And until that happens, until all people in the, between the river and the sea are equal, um, the conflict will last forever. Um, so back to you. Yeah, look, my... my- point here is to say that the conflict goes beyond just the existence of the state of Israel. I mean, the Palestinians are very clear in all of the charters they write that the Palestinians are the indigenous people, not a indigenous people, not one of the indigenous people, the indigenous people. And they want an ethno state. You have no possibility here of creating a common identity that has stronger bonds, that it has, has more uh, the potential for greater solidarity than the Jewish religion for Jews, the Muslim religion for Palestinians. You have no ability to create a common culture. So, you know, my entire defense on Zionism basically says that there really is no alternative. I mean, the only alternative we have is a two-state solution. Um and look, if you want to pressure Israel, I think it's reasonable to say that, that you should pressure Israel to leave the West Bank and Gaza. But there's no chance that Israel is just going to give everything up. You told, you said that you don't care what people want, but I think we have to care what people want. I mean, again, the, the Palestinians voted Hamas in in 2006. If there were elections, I mean, uh, Abbas canceled elections because Hamas would win. And they are very clear that they want a Palestinian ethno 
state. So there's no choice. You, your choice is not a choice. That this choice of a of a one state solution with equal rights for everybody simply doesn't exist. It's it's just not realistic. It's it's something that nobody wants. These are two tortured and unloved nations who are simply unable to lift up their eyes and see the other. So we're stuck. There's really only three options going forward. You have the one-state solution, or I'm sorry, the status quo. You want to call it a one-state solution. That's fine. You have the status quo, you have the two-state solution, or you have volcanic violence. There, there is no the solution. There's you're, You have no ability for refugees to return. It's absolutely out of the question uh, and impossible. And again, we, we have to look at what people in the region actually think and what the people actually want. Jews want an ethnostate. Palestinians want an ethnostate. And the best way to do that, the only way to do that, is to divide up the land. Real quick, Zach, before you go, uh, by the way, audience, tell me if my mic has improved. I worked on it a little bit. Much better. We have a super chat. So awesome. Great. I was just planning on sitting this one out and not saying much, but uh, since it works, here I am. Anyways, we did get a super chat. Uh, Superman, thank you so much for for the super chat. I really appreciate it. Superman goes, I think there's no greater accomplishment that the Jews can create than a secular state in the Middle East that includes Palestinians. That nation could be a guiding light for peace on earth. Thank you, Superman. So Superman, are you describing like a, a one, one, st- one binational state? Is that, is that uh, your vision? Anyways, uh, Zach Foster, all you. <laughs> Yeah, I think this idea that Jews and Palestinians can't live together is is a bit absurd. Um, Jews and Palestinians live together in peace in Israel, in Israel proper, in what Palestinians call 48 Pal- uh, Palestine. Um, uh, they live in Haifa together. They live in Lod together. They live in, in Ramla together. They live in Jerusalem together. Um, th- there's no problem with Jews and Palestinians living side by side in the same state. Okay, that, that's just a myth. Uh, we, we, we've proven over the past, uh, what, 70 some odd years since the establishment of the state of Israel that Jews and Palestinians can obviously live in a state together. The question is, will they have equal rights? And if they don't, the conflict will persist. And if they do have equal rights, um, there's hope of solving the conflict. And I think that that's what it comes down to. Uh, there are two types of Zionism. There's the Zionism that says that Israel has to be a Jewish state. And that is, I would say about 95, 98% of people believe that. I'm going off, I'm sorry, off of Schuperman's question. And that issue or, or that definition of Zionism has, has two problems. The first problem is obviously it creates issues with minority rights. I do not consider Israel to be an apartheid, green line Israel to be an apartheid state. You know, when you're on the highway of rights, just because you miss the exit for equal rights doesn't mean that the next exit is apartheid. There's a difference. It's an impartial democracy. It's an ethnic democracy. Uh, Arab citizens are absolutely not equal. That's just nonsense. But it's not apartheid. Um, uh, and they have most of the uh, the democratic, they have most of the trappings of, of democratic citizenship. Um Anyway, two types of Zionism. So there's a sort of Zionism that says that that Israel has to be a Jewish state. And you have the problem with uh, uh, minority rights. The other issue is that it's not necessary. You know, Jews living in Israel or anywhere will do Judaism not because the state mandates it, but because they want to. Like, you know, I studied some Torah today. It wasn't because the Prime Minister Naftali Bennett called me up and said, Zach, study Torah. 
I'm going to do a Shabbat dinner tomorrow night. It's not because Yair Lapid called me up and said, Zach, go do Shabbat dinner. The Jews come from the Judaism. And so I endorse the second type of Zionism, which says that the state of Israel has to be a majority state, but it should be neutral. Here's the problem historically. You have to remember when Israel was created. It was created in 1948. That was literally three years after we were almost annihilated. We are, the Jews are, a people of the void. And we were almost completely consumed by the void. And anti-Zionists expect us three years later to wake up, uh, 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 eat toast, and center our entire morality on another people. Again, right after we were just killed. I mean, think about it. For 2,000 years, we had no right. And three years after we were assassinated, or, or almost completely destroyed, we finally get the opportunity to have rights. And all of a sudden, the paradigm changes. And now what's important isn't national rights, but is human rights. So you have to give the Jewish people a little credit. You have to be a little sympathetic and understand where we're coming from here. Yeah, that, I'm really glad you brought that up, Zach, because I, I think you're, you're hitting on a, a really critical point here, which is that for a lot of Jews, uh, the state of Israel is the um, it's where rubber hits the road when it comes to anti-Semitism, right? It's the solution to the 2000 year problem of anti-Semitism. That's what Jews will tell you. That's what a lot of uh, Zionists will tell you. They say, listen, um, we've been, we Jews have been persecuted for, for millennia, for two millennia. The only solution to the inevitable anti-Semitism that Jews have faced and will always face is a, a state in which Jews are protected by the government. That's the argument that's made. But I think the argument is flawed for a few reasons. Um, so the, the, the first is that um, is that l l let's start with this idea that um, uh, that a, a state for the uh, a Jewish state for the Jews is is actually in the interest of the Jewish people. Um, so I, I'm a Jew. I live in the United States. I can vote. Um, I can uh, work wherever I want. I do not have to serve in an army. Uh, there's no mandatory uh, obligatory um, uh, conscription. Um, I have, um, I have political rights. I have, uh, freedom of movement. Um, I do not face any existential threats. There is no uh, group of people 12 miles from me trying to fire rockets at me. There is no group of people, uh, seven, 8 million strong who, who want to, um, uh, uh, who want to send uh, terrorists into my neighborhoods to blow me up. There, uh, as, as was the case in the 90s in Israel, where Jews in Israel faced regular daily terrorist attacks from Palestinians. Uh, um, there is no group of people, seven, eight million strong, uh, who, who believe that my system of education is teaching me hate. So I think the point I'm trying to make here is that um, when you create a, an ethnic exclusive state in which Jews are treated above others, what you're doing at the same time is creating hatred among a group of people that is the Palestinians towards Jews. And so if you look at, for example, in the 2014 Gaza war, and you go and ask the, uh, the, the, um, the family members of the Palestinians uh, who were killed in that war, they will all tell you, um, this is reporting uh, uh, that has been done. Uh, um, and I, I, we can share a link in the description, but basically if you go and interview Palestinians uh, who, who are family members of people killed in wars uh, uh, between, between Hamas and Israel, what you have is that at, time and time again, what they tell you is that I want to grow up and become a resistance fighter. 
And so essentially what you're doing when you um, occupy Gaza and the West Bank, when, when you expel, uh, expel Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan, uh, when you deny Palestinians the right to intermarry, uh, to, to marry uh, Palestinians from the West Bank with Palestinians in Israel, what you're doing is creating a group of people. You're ironing up hatred towards Jews. So this idea that Jews are somehow safer in Israel is total nonsense. I mean, Jews have, are, are more at threat in Israel, in my opinion, than anywhere else in the world. If you ask me, do I want to be 17, 18-year-old Jewish person in Israel or in the United States? Or in, let's even take a France or an Argentina or, or somewhere else where Jews are discriminated against. What you have is a situation where no other country are, are Jews being asked to carry up arms and face off against people who, uh, who, who are uh, throwing rocks at them. Only in Israel do 18-year-old Jews have to uh, encounter Palestinians throwing rocks at them. Jews are more in danger in Israel than anywhere else in the world. Look, even if that's so, I'm not sure what you want us to do. Like, you know, pack up and go back to Poland. The problem with what you're saying is this. The, the point you're making before about how Palestinians hate us because of the injustice that we do to them. This is what I call the reactive violence hypothesis. And the idea is that any Palestinian injustice, rocket shooting, rock throwing, suicide bombing, hatred, first comes or excuse me, any Palestinian violent action is a reaction to Israel's policy. And that argument has a problem. And it's a, it's a first cause problem, very similar to the idea of, well, you know, what set the planets in motion? Um, why, why is it that Palestinians only respond to Israeli injustice, um, but Israelis don't respond to Palestinians. I didn't put that well. Let me try again. The reactive violence hypothesis says that every single Palestinian action is, in fact, a reaction to Israel. Historically, that isn't actually true. Because if we go back, there was a time before Gaza and the Palestinians did not want us here. There was a time before the occupation, the Palestinians did not want us here. There was a time before the state and the Palestinians did not want us here. What is the beginning of Palestinian resentment of Jews living in Israel? And that's mass immigration to Israel. And that's the beginning of land control. And since that's where it starts and the Palestinian positions haven't exactly changed, that is where... Palestinian resistance ends with Jewish immigration, with the presence of the Israeli society. So it is not our policies. It is not our existence. It is the presence of a Jewish society here. And what you're saying, essentially, this reactive violence hypothesis, you're denying that Palestinians have any ability to do spontaneous wrong. There are Jews who have rights and for no reason at all attack Palestinians just because we want to dominate, just because we want to destroy. I don't know. I guess we're predators. We're, we're flesh-eating beasts that want to prey on Palestinian children. Palestinians, on the other hand, only react. They only react to prior Jewish injustice. And what you get in the end is that you have no human beings who live in Palestine. You have Palestinians who are angels who only react to Israeli injustice. And you have Israelis who are devils, who have our rights, and for some reason seek to humiliate and to dominate and to destroy. 
And, and that's a very problematic view, and it isn't true. And what it does is it denies Palestinian, that the Palestinian national movement is a national movement. You know, there's a 200-year-old left-wing tradition of blindness, of numbness, of deafness to nationalism. I mean, Zach at the beginning said something that really doesn't make any sense. He said, well, I'm against all movements that favor one ethnic group over another. And yet Palestinians blatantly favor one ethnic group over another. They favor Palestinians over Jews. And in the final plan for a one-state solution, this plan is produced by the Palestine Land Society by a, a guy named Samun Abu Sita. Not sure if you know him. Beautiful, the Atlas of Palestine, you probably do. So in that plan, land allocation goes like this. 95% for Palestinians, 5% for Jews, because that's all the land that we owned in 1948. Palestinians are nationalists. There is a component to their violence that goes beyond any sort of social or economic or political grievance. We know that from history and we know that from humanity. The Palestinians are nationalists. And, you know, this is a problem that the left just refuses to wrestle with. You know, I, I, my father, I used to have difficult math problems. I'd come home with high school, college. And my father said, kid, are you wrestling with the problems? I don't see the left wrestling with these problems. Sorry, one more point and then I'm finished. It's very common to see tweets, Palestinians just want rights and freedom. And if you look into that tweet and you ask yourself, well, what is it missing? It's missing nationalism. There is a nationalist component here that has nothing to do with Israeli injustice. And the left doesn't say a word on it. Yeah, a few points. So first of all, um, historically, um, I think you made the point that uh, Palestinians have, have always preferred Palestinian rights to, to, to Jewish rights. And if you go back to some of the earliest organized political Palestinian activities in the 1920s, in fact, the, the first Palestinian National Congress in, in, in 1920 um, uh, passed a resolution in, in which they supported equal rights for Jews, Muslims, and Christians, that all Jews, Muslims, and Christians uh, who were present in Palestine before World, One, World War I would have equal rights. Uh, so th th this idea that, and if you talk to Palestinians today in the West Bank, they're always, always very, very clear to tell you, listen, we, um, we do not discriminate against any religious group. We do not discriminate against, against Christians, uh, uh, against Jews. Um, the, the, in fact, they, they love talking about how there are Jewish Palestinians. That is a common refrain among Palestinian uh, uh, progressives. So um, th 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 this idea that uh, uh, Palestinians uh, are, are, are hostile to what, what they're hostile to is a group of people who want to dominate them. That, that, that's the key. And, and so I, another point I want to make here is that to this question of, of how, how do you how do you protect? How do you safeguard Jewish Jews? Um, how do you safeguard Jews against anti-Semitism? I think there's a very clear way you safeguard Jews, which is the same way you safeguard all groups, which is that you respect international law, and you respect the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which, which are some of the humanity's most incredible achievements. I mean, we really forget this, but just think how many centuries, how many millennia passed where we've all slaughtered each other because I said, hey, I want your land. And you said, um, no, it's my land. And so I came and slaughtered you. And that doesn't work. Okay. St states need to respect international law. You cannot conquer land in a war. Article two of the UN Charter is very clear about that. It's, it's really one of the most foundational principles we have. Uh, um, that 
And and by the way, had we had that principle a few few decades earlier, had had the nations of the world, have the uh, countries of the world come to this consensus that you cannot uh, invade your neighbors, you cannot conquer land through war, had we come to that consensus in 1880 or in 1920, maybe Hitler wouldn't have invaded Poland, and maybe um, we would have saved millions of lives during World War II. Maybe we could have prevented the slaughter of Jews if only we had come to that realization earlier. And so I think if you look around the world and ask yourself, where are Jews safest? Where are Jews? Where do Jews have uh, guaranteed rights? Where are Jews protected? It's in countries that respect international law. It's in countries that respect human rights. It's in countries that treat all their citizens equally. That is the future. And so if you ask yourself, how can Jews guarantee their future? How can we ensure that there will never be another Holocaust for the Jews or for any other group? It's in respecting international law, respecting human rights, and respecting... Um, the, the, the Declaration of Human Rights uh, uh, that, um, uh, that honestly you know, is one of the most profound declarations in all of human history, and that's, that's the path forward. Let's talk about the Holocaust. Um, yeah, never again. What does it mean? Why did Jews die in the Holocaust? So I refer wait, to the Wait, Zach, of, Zach are, are, you, are you going on a new topic? This is about international law. I, I was going to make the point that Palestinians don't respect it. You know me. I, oh, I, I, I kind of want to. I, I just want to chime in with with one thought I'm having Please. here. So, you know, there, there's there's debate as to, you know, Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Armenians, right? It's not, it's not like a homogeneous ethnic group like like you classically think of one. Palestinian national identity in many ways solidified and strengthened as a response to Zionism. So it's almost like the groups, the, the, the inhabitants of this land who were not included in the Jewish state, who weren't Jewish, they were they kind of band together as one against against the Jewish state. And it's not hard to understand why that's the case. But what's also true is that it's not like minority groups historically have been treated so well in this region. Us Jews have not as well. So it's true that right now you have many Palestinian groups, even minorities within Palestinians who are all unified around Palestinian national aspirations. It's not clear that once there is no common enemy to band around that the that there won't begin infighting within Palestinian society. Often that is the case when there is no no longer an external enemy and Jews very much don't feel comfortable being a demographic minority um on this land especially after we've had now 100 years of of conflict with one another. So, so on one hand, it's true, you know, Palestinians are made up of many different ethnic groups and live peacefully with one, one another. But that doesn't convince Jews that we're just going to be fine if we're one day a minority. Um, and, and I guess, Zach Foster, this goes to you because a one state solution, you know, the, the idealist in me and the humanist in me wants a one binational state. It just seems perfect. You know, let's just share. But when I look at how it will play out and when I see two two populations who have just been fighting for 100 years, the, the, the last thing we want is a, is a battle over demographic control. And I don't think that with such levels of trust and despair, uh, such levels of mistrust between one another, I don't see binational, a binational state being anything but a complete disaster. 
um, until we have generations of peace. Do you, are you optimistic? Like, what, what do you say to the Jews living here who don't don't want to be a minority or are scared of what that means? I, I think I think whites made the same arguments in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s that um, in the United States that um, uh, you know we enslaved black people. They are violent. They are dangerous. They want to kill us. If they have equal rights, we're going to be in danger. Um, I think the same was said in Lebanon. Um, Christians dominated the Lebanese state for decades and decades, and then uh, that um, led to a civil war in the 1980s. Uh, and and eventually, Muslims gained uh, equal rights. Now, I'm not, I don't want to get into the details of confessionalism in Lebanon. That's a pretty messed up system. But the bottom line is that it. Um, the, the bottom line is that they had to. Um, Leban- Lebanese Christians would have made the same argument. Muslims are violent. They're dangerous. We've discriminated against. Therefore, we can't uh, uh, have a system where we're equal with them. I think the same was w- would be true in um, uh, w- would be true in the UK. Um, uh, uh, British uh, people, uh, English people, would have said the same about the Scots or, or the Irish, and they would have said these people are dangerous. They're violent. They're going to kill us. We can't give them equal rights. Uh, in Australia, they made the same argument about the Aborigines. Aborigines people, we've been they've been discriminating against for, for, for centuries. If we give them equal rights, they're going to come back and kill us. In every place in the world, wherever you have discriminated groups, wherever you have oppressed groups, um, the dominant group, the majority, always says, oh, my God, we can't live in peace with these people. If they have equal rights, they're going to come out and kill us. And I think in every, in every example, in every case, when you do give people equal rights, when you do uh, allow um, people to vote, when you do um, uh, open up uh, uh, countries, um, the result is almost always positive. Democracies don't fight one another. Democracies are almost always at peace with one another. Countries that uh, ensure guaranteed democratic rights, guaranteed division of powers, guaranteed freedom of press, guaranteed uh, independent judiciary. These countries are the most successful, the most prosperous, the most democratic, the most peaceful countries in the world. The same will obviously be true in Israel. Yeah, so Thank it you. looks like the discussion... Oh, sorry, Adar. Yeah, okay. real quick, I just want to shout out Eyal Herzog. Thank you for the super chat. Oh. Eyal goes good points, Adar. Thanks, Eyal. Good to see you here in uh, in the chat section. Anyways, uh, Zach, Corner, all you. Thanks, yeah. So we've moved on to the South Africa analogy. Um, I, I want to make a couple points about that. So the South African or the American conflict is very different. That conflict I would call a mono-national conflict. And those conflicts are very easy to solve because those conflicts are about human rights. All the majority has to do is give the minority human rights and everything is gravy. And that's for two reasons. One, because the minority has signed on to the political covenant of the country. I just want to read almost have it committed to memory. I'm a bit proud of myself. Uh, from the from the, um, the South African Charter. Anyway, it says, we the people. So this was the charter produced by the Black South African Movement, the, the uh, Freedom Congress, African National Congress. It's called the Freedom Charter. Excuse me. Um, we the people of South Africa declare for all our country and the world to know that South Africa belongs to all who live in it, Black and white. So this is a mononational conflict. You have everybody signed on to the political covenant. Things are quite different when you turn to Israel and Palestine, because that is a binational conflict. And not only is it a binational conflict, it is a binational settler colonial conflict. And 
I want to read the language from some of the charters produced by Palestinians over time. The Hamas Charter, not of 1988, of 2017, the refurbished Hamas Charter. Palestine is the land of the Palestinian Arab people. The PLO's Charter in 1964, Palestine is an Arab homeland. The PLO's Charter in 1968, Palestine is the homeland of the Palestinian Arab people. So you see a great difference there. Um, Palestinians say that we are the indigenous people, not a indigenous people, not one of the indigenous people. We are the only indigenous people that live there. Very different from the South African conflict. So that's one point. The other point is about the nature of rights. You know, rights are great. Human rights are great because they're like a firework show. And the beauty of a firework show is everybody can go see the firework show and nobody really has to care where anybody's sitting. Because if I sit next to you or behind you, I don't make the fireworks any less bright. And this is how human rights work. It's positive sum. The more people that show up to the fireworks show, the better. More people can enjoy it. How great. The Israel-Palestinian conflict is not like fireworks because the Israel-Palestinian conflict is not about human rights. It's about land. And the Palestinians are very clear that they want not some of the land, but a majority of the land, 96, 95 percent of the land. And, and that is tremendous baggage. Now, if we zoom out to our region, forgetting about places like Belgium and Canada, which really aren't relevant, if we zoom out and we look at how binational states have gone down, have, have, have functioned or have not functioned in the Middle East. Everyone seems to be a disaster. Lebanon is going through the worst crisis any country has gone through since the 19th century. Some organization just put that out. I'm sorry, I don't have the quote for you. Uh, Iraq is a disaster. Syria is a disaster. Jordan, where Palestinians, which is a binational state with Palestinians and Jordanians, they're very close to each other. It's a disaster. And by the way, this is not to throw shade this is not to insult any of the great cultures or the religions of the region. It has nothing to do with that, okay? Every culture has, has its good and its bad qualities. Every culture is redeemable. But these are relevant facts. Now, there's a lot of, of people like Peter Beinart, you know, an anti-Zionist who wants to kind of flick this away and say, oh, it doesn't matter. You're just being racist and, and Islamophobic. I'm sorry. These are relevant facts. Binationalism has not worked. And what about binational settler colonialism? Because that is even more complicated than just binationalism. We do have an example for that. And the example for that is Algeria, where in the 1950s and 60s, there was a horrid civil war and the Algerian uh, liberation nationalist movement kicked out, uh, purged some 1.5 million French citizens. And by the way, the PLO looked to the FLN, the FLN was the group, that, uh, that, that led the, the Algerian uh, uh, civil war, uh, they, they, they looked up to them. They, they, they saw them as a beacon of inspiration. So you have really significant issues going forward. And look, there's never going to be a one-state solution here. It's never going to happen. Again, our options are an Israeli ethnostate, um, two states, or horrendous violence. Yeah, just one one quick point here, which is that I think you you made the point that the PLO and Hamas and maybe Fatah and other Palestinian political groups believe that uh, Palestine Israel should be a Palestinian Arab state. It's 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 always great to talk about what groups want. I think it's even better to talk about what the reality on the ground is. So the reality on the ground is that there is a single state that Israel controls all human beings within that state. Israel controls all the registrations of all the births and all the marriages and all the divorces and all the deaths and all the address changes in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. 
Israel controls all the telecommunications, all the electricity, all the, the, the currencies in Gaza, Israel, and the West Bank. Israel decides who leaves the country, who enters the country, uh, who can uh, sh- who can fish in the Mediterranean Sea, who can cross the Jordanian border. Israel decides uh, uh, who uh, gets access to the groundwater, who gets access to to the airspace. Um, Israel controls the uh, um, the border with Egypt, except for one very small part. And I think um, this is a very important point here, which is that in a world where Israel controls everything, where the Jewish state controls everything. Um, you're, you're then pointing out and saying, hey, look, the Palestinians think Palestinians should also have the same things. The Palestinian Arabs should also uh, be part of the state. So um, I think instead of talking about what groups want, we should talk about what the reality on the ground is and the way to change that reality. The way to change that reality is not to say, oh, look, the Palestinians want this to be Arab-Palestinian. No, I mean, yes, the Palestinians want it to be Palestinian. The Jews want it to be uh, Jewish. There's an obvious solution here. When you enter a courthouse and you have a, 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 a when you enter a, um, a a counselor, a marriage council, when you enter a courthouse, when, when, when you have a, a, a basketball game or a football game, you have referees. In all such cases, it's absolutely critical that the referees or the marriage counselors or the judges act impartially. They do not privilege Jews or Arabs. They do not privilege one party or the other. The only possible solution, there's only one way that Jews and Arabs will ever come into an agreement in Palestine and that in or Israel, and that is if they are treated as individuals rather than Jews or Palestinians. You spoke about marriage counselors. You know, sometimes a couple goes to the marriage counselor and they say, "Hey, I, I can't help you. It's time for you guys to head to the for a divorce." And that's what the two-state solution is. Um, I don't know who these impartial people are. I've met Palestinians. All the Palestinians I've met, I've I've had friends at the university. They want a Palestinian ethnostate. All the Jews I know want a Jewish ethnostate. There are no impartial observers here. I want to address one point you made about control. This is going to be a topic. And I find this very frustrating because, you know, when we're talking about the occupation, there are three concepts that travel together, right? You have occupation, you have settlements, and you have control. And to my mind, the settlements in the West Bank are completely illegal. They're completely immoral. Um, You know, Jews, again, have have national rights, historical rights. They have legitimate pursuits in the West Bank. But we've seen how the implementation of settlements have gone, and it's been a disaster for Palestinian human rights. The only way that Jews can live in the West Bank is through trampling the rights of the Palestinians. So settlements are illegal. They're immoral. And if they're not illegal, then they should be illegal. Um, However, control of the area has to be legal. I mean, this is what the two-state solution is. The two-state solution says that until the Palestinians give peace, Israel doesn't have to give back the land. And if Israel gives back the land, which is what we did in Gaza, and Palestinians open fire, then we're allowed to recontrol it. You know, what the left has done here is they've moved the goalposts. You know, we go to shoot a free throw, and they put up a basket, and they say, okay, just get rid of the settlements. Get rid of the settlements, and you're cool with us. We get rid of the settlements in Gaza, and then all of a sudden they say, whoa, 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 well, what about control? The two-state solution is a three-way pact. Three ways. Israel gives up peace. Excuse me. Palestinians give peace. Israel gives up land. And the international community gives legitimacy. And part of that legitimacy is through is, is, is allowing Israel to defend itself and to honor our political covenant 
to our citizens. If I, if I want to get a little silly, I can say, you know, to, to protect the sanity of our children. We, we see in steroid PTSD uh, among children, uh, trauma, mental illness is at a very high level because of Hamas's rockets. Um, and the reason why control is important is you're saying, if you say, no, 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 control is equal to settlements and it's all the occupation, then what you're saying is that we have to give up land for war. And in fact, you have broken your obligation. You have violated your obligation of the two-state solution because the two-state solution says that Israel can control the land indefinitely, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, until we get peace. And there'll be people in the comments who shake their fist and tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. But it's true. Not only is control fully compatible with the two-state solution, control of the land, again, not settlements, control is the two-state solution. There used to be a piece of common wisdom that said that, you know what, we technically, we, we really do have rights to the West Bank. It's our land. Abraham was there. Isaac was there. Jacob was there. Sarah Rifka. But pragmatically, for the, for the legitimacy of the state, for the future of the country, we have to give up the West Bank settlements and the Gazan settlements and turn them over to the Palestinians. And that's the only way that Israel can be legitimate. Well, look, we gave up the settlements in Gaza. Hamas launched the war. We produced, we in Israel produced all these little coffins. You know, you have Dua Lipa, who I understand is very upset about seeing little coffins. I'd be upset too. And so the common wisdom no longer holds. We no longer have a pragmatic reason to give up the settlements. My last point. There's an irony here. Both the right and the left say that settlements don't matter. The right wing, the Ishai Fleischers of the world, say settlements don't matter because they're legal and they're moral. On the left, the anti-Zionists say that settlements don't matter because it's all about control. Control and settlements are the same thing. This is a violation of the two-state solution. So do settlements make things worse? Absolutely. But settlements, but giving up settlements don't make things any better. And you cannot expect ideals, ideals, human rights. You cannot expect a society to give up something, to make the painful decision, the very painful decision of uprooting 300, 400,000 people if all we're going to get in return is rockets, is eating rockets. And the reason why we don't want to eat rockets is because they're not kosher. I mean, people don't know that there's actually shellfish in, in the rocket fuel. You know, we'd love to eat them, but, you know, Hamas for some reason puts oysters in there. It, Thanks for smiling. I, I appreciate that on the dad joke. Thank you, Tony. Zach, that was uh, that was a great joke. Um, Thank you. You should try out stand-up comedy. It's uh, <clears throat> I think it's a, holds a promising career path for you. Look, I'm I'm glad you brought up uh, Israel's withdrawal from uh, the, the settlements, uh, the, the Gaza settlements. He he nice boots in was it 2005? Um, because obviously uh, the withdrawal of the settlements didn't end the occupation of Gaza. In fact, it actually worsened the occupation of Gaza, right? Because after uh, Hamas came to power. Um, Israel imposed a, a, a siege that has left 90% of the population without safe drinking water. Israel controls the telecommunication network in Gaza. Israel controls the groundwater. Israel, Israel controls the three of the four uh, uh, borders. Israel controls the sea. So th 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 the occupation has gotten worse in Gaza after the settlements uh, were, were evacuated, not, not better. So this idea is somehow that uh, Israel left Gaza is, is just total and utter nonsense. Um, but but let, let's actually talk about the... Um, 
the settlements here because I think that there's really critical, there's a few critical points to make about settlements. Okay. So um, first of all, as we all know, it's a war crime for an occupying power to transfer part of its civilian population to into occupied territory. Um, that's that. That's that's what international law says. As we already said before, international law is and and the international uh, international declaration of human rights is probably the single most important development in human history in the past few millennia. It's it's the world all getting together and saying, listen, let's agree on some basic principles so we don't keep killing each other forever. That's a beautiful thing that we should all believe in. And 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 transferring your your ter- your, your population onto occupied land is is a violation of those principles and those treaties and international law. And so we should reject it. But we should reject it also because the three of these settlements off in the West Bank um, involve land theft. Land theft. In many cases, they um, uh, they involve physical assault. Between 2009 and 2011, I pulled these numbers before this uh, talk, settlers assaulted Palestinians on average 300 times per year. So basically six out of every seven days, you had a Israeli settler in the West Bank physically assault or harass a Palestinian, which makes sense because as the old biblical saying goes, God spent six days assaulting Palestinians and he rested on the seventh day. But the problem with the settlements, of course, runs much deeper than the violations of international law. And it runs much deeper than the theft and harassment and physical assault. The problem with the settlements is that they're permanent. That's why we call them settlements, right? Because they are settlements. That uh, means they're permanent. And I think um, when you realize that um, Israel has established permanent settlements in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, we're talking many, many hundreds of thousands of people. The biggest Israeli university is in Ariel. It's in a settlement. It's not going anywhere. It has tens of thousands of students. Um, there are uh, uh, something like 200, 150 to 200,000 uh, Jewish settlers in East Jerusalem, um, these settlements are not going anywhere, okay? They're permanent. And actually, occupation, as you probably know, is legal, as long as it's temporary. You know, the U.S. occupied Japan after World War II. That occupation ended in 1952, okay? It was temporary. Israel's settlements are not temporary. And so what you have is you have a situation in which Jews living in, let's say, Beit El, um, are literally living five-minute walking distance from Palestinians in Jalzun, Okay, five, 10, 15 minute walk. Okay, and those Palestinians are going to live in Jalzun forever, and Jews are going to be living in Beit El forever. Those settlements are not going anywhere. Those Palestinians are not going anywhere. And so, what you have is a situation in which Jews are living side by side, Palestinians within a 10 minute walking distance one from the other, in which Jews have the right to vote for their government, and Palestinians do not have the right for, to vote for their government. And that is called apartheid, and it needs to be ended. And the way to end it is with a single democratic secular state in which all people, Jews, Palestinians, Christians, Muslims, Bedouin, uh, have equal rights. They all have the right to vote. And um, that that is ultimately, and I think, I think really the point I would really try and get across is that's an inevitability. Because if you accept the fact that the settlements are permanent, and if you accept the fact that the Palestinians are permanent, and if you accept the fact that Inevitably, injustices lead to just uh, to, to anti-injustice movements, which is the case everywhere in the world. Wherever you have injustice, you have movements trying to end that injustice. That's an inevitability. It's one of the most, I think, dominant trends in all of human history, the trend from injustice to justice. And if you accept all of those things to be true, essentially, you will come to the realization that the only possible outcome in the West Bank, at least, let's just uh, leave Gaza aside for a minute, but in the West Bank, the only possible outcome is... Um, that West Bank is that West Bank Palestinians will eventually realize that the only out the only way for them to achieve any kind of meaningful equality 
is as citizens within the state of Israel. And um, I think young Palestinians already realize that. If you go around the West Bank and you talk to Palestinians in Ramallah, you talk to Palestinians in Nablus, you talk to anyone who is sick and tired of the PA, who's sick and tired of Hamas, who's sick and tired of Israel, all uh, pro like progressives, young Palestinians, they all agree. I think maybe not all, but most agree that the, the inevitability, the inevitable outcome here is, is, is equal rights inside Israel. And I would say that in the next 5, 10, 15 years, uh, the, the Palestinians in the West Bank will transition from a group of people who are demanding a separate state to a group of people demanding equal rights inside Israel. Zach, do you want to, Zach Corner, do you want to follow up? You're on mute. You got on, here, let me unmute you. Okay, you're good to go. Yeah, well, but I just want to ask, how much longer are we going on for? Because um, it's kind of open-ended. Well, yeah, it's kind of open-ended. I'm Okay. Hour, no problem. I do want to take audience questions, uh, you know, chat. Okay. As, as the conversation progresses chat is getting more and more heated uh which is which is quite quite natural but um we will take uh questions so let's do like another 20 minutes of dialogue and then we'll do some questions sounds great uh i wanted to say that that this point that uh, mr foster makes about the settlements really doesn't make any sense the idea is what that israel will never give up the territories but Israel is going to, if just with enough pressure, with enough prodding, Israel is going to give up the territories and give up itself. So it doesn't make any sense. If Israel is not going to give up the territories, it's not going to give up both the territories and itself. Um, you know, equality for Palestine... Equality does not answer all the Palestinians' desires. I mean, Palestinians say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Not Palestine will be equal. Palestine will be free. Free for what? For Palestinians to practice their national rights. And they will not have that ability in a bi-national state. You say that the most dominant trend in human history is towards human rights. That is not the most dominant trend in human history. The most dominant trend in human history is nationalism. We see the return of nationalism in Europe. We see it on America, in America, on both sides of the political divide. And we certainly see it in Israel-Palestine, where both the Jewish side and the Palestinian side is growing more and more and more nationalistic. Um, I also don't know how you're going to get to a point where everybody shares the state with equality. First of all, how can there possibly be equality if the refugees return? There's some 7 million refugees that are going to return. I don't know where they're going to return to. There's simply no land for them. The land as is is full, and we're running into all these environmental problems. I don't know where they're going to return to, and how exactly are you going to make them return? I mean, it's not just like that you're going to exclude Israel from a volleyball tournament, and someday Jews are just going to throw up their hands in the air and say, oh, well, I guess we have to give up our state now. It's never going to happen. And, and we understand what the fate of that state will be. There's going to be more Palestinians than there are Israelis. And that means that it's not going to be an equal state. It's not going to be a binational state. It is going to be a Palestinian ethnostate. If I have another just two minutes, 
Uh, you guys are very generous. Thank you. I mentioned this plan that uh, uh, Abu al-Sita said, um, or that he that he put out with the Palestine Land Society. He cites this number 5% or maybe 6%. Now, 5 or 6% is a very famous number in the conflict, though it's not very well known. That is the amount of land that Jews owned in 1948. And it's also an amount of land that Jews should own. So it's a fact and it's a normative claim, a fact about the amount of land that Jews own and a normative claim about the amount of land that Jews own. So according to this plan, which I believe is a reflection of genuine Palestinian will and the aspirations of the Palestinian people, Palestinians get 95%, Jews get 5%. What about the truth? Well, we hear from guys like Omer Barghouti over at the BDS movement that the Jews are actually not a nation. And this is very common from Palestinians. There's very few Palestinians who admit that we're a nation. We're not a nation that we have to give up our identity. We have to give up our national identity in order for the binational uh, idea to exist. Ali Abu Nima says that there's going to be this truth and reconciliation commitment where we come and, our, and, and we beat our chests before the Palestinians and we say, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, Dibarnu, Dofi, we, we, we have sinned before you, we've done terrible things, please accept us. In other words, we're not going to even be able to have the truth. Joseph Massad, famous anti-Zionist, probably an anti-Semite too, over at Columbia University, he says that the Jews stole, he, he can't stand walking around New York City and seeing Israeli salad. He says, this isn't Israeli salad. They stole this from us. This is Palestinian rural farmer salad. And I got to give it to him. That, that has quite the ring to it, Palestinian rural farmer salad. So Palestinians can't share the land. They can't share the truth. They can't even share the freaking salad. And you're telling me that they're going to share a society. I don't buy it. And again, big guy, all I hear from you is a litany of Israel's crimes. Where are the Palestinians in any of this? Wrestle with the math problem. Realize there's this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad tension between Palestinian nationalism and universalism. The Palestinian national movement is a national movement with no universal program whatsoever. Yeah, so let's let's start with uh, the question of the refugees, which you brought up, which I would actually like to address here because I think that's quite important whenever we're talking about Israel-Palestine. Um. Something like 435,000 Albanians fled Kosovo in 1999 as refugees. Guess what happened after the war? They went home. In May 2021, you may recall, just a few months ago, Israelis from Sterot and Ashkelon became, well, not refugees, but in IDPs, internally displaced peoples in northern Israel. Guess what happened after the war? They went home. Um, my grandfather grew up in Poland. He fled uh, Poland shortly uh, uh, before um, Polish police showed up to his village and murdered his entire family. Poland grants me, Zach Foster, the right to return to Poland because of my Polish grandfather. If Poland doesn't discriminate against Jews in its right of return policy, why should Israel discriminate against Palestinians in its right of return policy? And I do want to uh, focus here on the phrase right of return, because I think we're, we're always exceptionalizing Israel-Palestine. And, and what I've been trying to do in this debate, and you probably noticed that, is de-exceptionalize it. Is say, if we want to understand what makes for peaceful, democratic societies, let's look around the world and see where are the peaceful, democratic societies and what makes them peaceful, what makes them democratic, what makes them desirable, prosperous places to live. And the same, I would say, is, is, is true of, of, of rights of return. It's a universal principle. Um, in fact, you know where the Palestinians even got the phrase return from, right of return. It's, it's part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 
which says that every country, which says that everyone has the right to leave any country, including his or her own country, and to return to his or her own country. That's part of the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights. Um, and so I think, I mean, even beyond the, the, the legal question, I think there's a bigger question here, which is that um, Israel adamantly refuses, refuses to acknowledge the, the, the problem. I mean, th- th- this gets deeper here. Israel uh, does not acknowledge they bear any responsibility for the creation of the Palestinian refugees. This is why Israel tries to reseal files from 1948 after they've already been exposed and written about by, by historians. Talk to Benny Morris, talk to Shai Haskani. They're literally reclassifying files that have already been discovered and written about and published about. It's like, bro, the cat is out of the bag. By trying to reclassify documents, all you're doing that have already been exposed by historians, all you're doing is drawing more attention to them. It's self-defeating. Israel strips funding from organizations that commemorate the Nakba. Um, Israel uh, penalizes uh, uh, Palestinians for talking about their own ethnic cleansing and history. I mean, just imagine if Israel penalized Jews for talking about the Holocaust. I mean, it would be completely absurd. So the, the, there's a number of problems here with the refugees. It's the legal problem. Um, it, it's the recognition problem. It's the acknowledgement problem. It's the theft problem. Um, there, there are num- there, if, if you go into the archives from 1940, you have all these Palestinians. This is this is research by Shai Haskani. You have all these Palestinians writing to uh, you know letters. They wrote letters to to, to um, that were intercepted by the state of Israel, and they and they were saying, hey, listen to to my neighbor. Can you look after my orange grove in Jaffa? Because I mean, I'm gonna, I'm going away. There's a war. I, I'm going to be back in a few weeks. Can you look after my uh, uh, orange groves? Why weren't those people left back in the country? Um, they were, were not let back in the country because they were Palestinian. Um, so I think the basic problem here is that um, Israel uh, refuses to allow these people back uh, into their homes. Um, and again, that exacerbates the problems. That creates more uh, tension. It, it, it creates more people that hate Israel. And I think ultimately, if you want to solve for the real underlying issues of this conflict, which is the hate, which is uh, the, the lack of acknowledgement and mutual respect for both sides, you need to solve these underlying issues, including the refugee issue. I have a big mouth. I, I always have something to say if I could jump in. Yeah, go for it, Zach. Go for it. Sounds good. So, look, there are two Nakbas. There's the Nakba that happened in 1948, the historical Nakba. And that Nakba I accept. And I accept that Israel has quite a bit of responsibility. Though, I think people should be a little sympathetic because, I mean, you know, we just went through literally a Holocaust. And it looked like we were going to get holocausted again. So, you know, I, I, I often see this thing where, where people step into Palestinian shoes and empathize with Palestinians, but they never seem to empathize with Israeli Jews. Anyway, there's a Nakba of 1948, and that Nakba I accept. The Nakba that I refuse to accept is the eternal Nakba. The Nakba, which is above history, which is beyond history, the timeless Nakba which says that that there's an injustice that hovers over the entire land. And if you go out in Palestine late at night on a quiet night, and if, if, if you listen closely, you can hear injustice shrieking in the wind. I don't accept this. And there, there are, there are, there's a number of major problems that this creates. It creates a moral problem, this idea of open-ended right of return. Now, you spoke about 1999 in Kosovo. 1999 just happened. I'm not sure exactly... You know, I'm, I'm an incompetent historian. I'm a philosopher. So I, I don't know exactly. But I imagine that the people who return return very quickly after. Because if the right of return becomes eternal, if it becomes inherited 
from, if it comes passed down from parent to child to child to grandchild, then on the other side, on the Israeli side, guilt, sin, shame becomes passed down from parent to child to grandchild. And this is what I was talking about, this crime of being. I mean, this is this is very heavy stuff. You know, the only example that, that I have or that we have as Jews in history, that this idea of the transmission of, of guilt is the killing of, of Jesus Christ, where the Jews said, or at least it's written in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, let his head be upon us on the head and, and, and let his guilt, excuse me, be upon us or his blood be upon us and on the heads of our children. You cannot have a situation where guilt is inherited from parent to child to grandchild. Now, guards at Auschwitz, I don't have much nice to say about them. You know, the guys who throw Zyklon B into or, or shot Jews, but I don't think their grandkids are guilty for that. And yet the Palestinians are saying that not only were the soldiers guilty um, for the uh, uh, and and you know for the Nakba and the right of return, the entire generation and every subsequent generation. I mean, we're going back to the Code of Hammurabi, where if you kill somebody's son, if you rape somebody's daughter, you're allowed to rape their daughter. That can't be. You cannot have this structure of guilt where guilt is transmitted from parent to child to grandchild. You just can't have it. It just it just sounds wrong, and it is wrong. The other issue, and I mentioned it before, is the environment. There isn't anywhere to put these people. You cannot feed the world out of a flower pot. Neither can you. Where are you going to put 7 million refugees? We are already running into tremendous environmental problems. And think about it. There's going to be political problems. You know, there's this one of the first books written by a Westerner uh, proposing the one state solution was by Virginia Tilly in 2005. And in that book, she argues that Israelis and excuse me, that, that Palestinians and Jordanians are too far apart to ever live together in a binational state. Think about how much further apart Jews and Palestinians are. And then added on top of that are environmental issues. It becomes quite literally impossible. Now, you said about Poland and that you're allowed to go back to Poland. Now, I just looked up the population of Poland. Nice to pop your peas on that. It's 38 million people. They ain't allowing no 39 million Jews. Let's say there were 39 million Jews to go back to Poland. They might allow. You're not letting millions and millions and millions. In other words, a a number of people equal to the total population. So if 50,000 Palestinian refugees wanted to return, no problem. If 100,000 wanted to return, no problem. But there are 7 million Jews. There are already something like 7 million Palestinians. On top of that, you want to add another 7 million Palestinians? You do not have, we have to exceptionalize here. You do not have another example of that, where after three or four generations, a number of people returned to a country where the number of people was equal to the majority of that country. You, you have no historical example of that. Real quick, um, so Zach, first of all, I agree, uh, Corner, you'd know by the question. Um, I agree that generational guilt is something that we should just outright reject. Um, It's just such a silly, um, nonsensical, and harmful concept whether it's here on the land or whether it's in Western social justice spaces, which it's also quite popular. Generational guilt, let's, you know, I think we're in agreement there. 
collective responsibility to try to make things better, though, I think is something that is makes perfect sense. But the, the point I want to make, I, I, I want to give a slightly more gracious interpretation of the, the silent Nakba, the, the eternal one. That to me doesn't seem so different as Jews yearning to return to the land after thousands of years in exile. You know, it, it very much remained a part of our collective story that one day we will return. And to me, this kind of, they have a similar story to us. It's a sign, I mean, I, I like to say it's a sign that after all, we're not so different. Don't right. get me wrong, I'm still not, I'm still not for a, a binational state. But I, I do have a more gracious interpretation of, of what I view this silent knock, but it'd be because we have something like that as well. You, you could respond to that, Zach, and if you don't want to, then... Uh, yeah, so I, again, I, I, don't justify, I don't justify Israel or Zionism in terms of our right to the land or, or our wanting to come here. Zionism is just because we live here now, and the only way to protect the Jewish people who live here and by the way, the Palestinians as well, is through the continued existence of the state. So let's say that Zionism just started today and all these Jews had, hey, you know, we want to go back to Palestine. I would be against it. I would be completely against that. And, you know, I, I call it the, the repugnant conclusion. It's, it's this idea that perhaps... I'm stealing that from uh, Derek... Uh, uh, oh, gosh, what's his name? Derek Parsons. Um it's the idea that that maybe the world would be better off without Israel. You know, maybe the Jewish state created a net negative. Maybe like Mr. Foster says, it's worse for Jews. Maybe it's worse for Palestinians. But even if the repugnant conclusion is true, it doesn't matter because we're here now. Uh, one last uh, a metaphor, because I love my muscles. You know, a couple, husband, wife, whatever family arrangement might be thinking about the, you know, having a child. You know, that you know, the, the father wants a child, the, the mother is opposed to a child, and it's perfectly fine to be opposed to a child that doesn't yet exist. But once that child exists, you're not allowed to oppose its existence anymore. Okay? And you can't go back to 1920 and say, well, the Jews there. Israel exists now, and the fate of seven million Jews and the and Palestinians rests on the continued existence of this country. I have to get water. I, I apologize. I'm dying of thirst. All good. Go for it. In the meantime, we'll read a super chat. Then Zach Foster will respond. And then I think we could go to some audience uh, questions. Matthew K, $10. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, Foster, do you think that nationalism plays a role in Palestinian aspirations? Or do you think that granting them full rights will call, cause them to move past that aspect of their narrative? Good question, Matthew. The question of Palestinian nationalism is a great one because it's something that I think um, all uh, people who care deeply about the Palestinian cause really need to struggle with. On the one hand, you have a group of people who see Zionists and, and Jewish nationalists having realized national ambition, having, uh, um, ha having established a Jewish state, having created Jewish domination and Jewish control, and they say, why, well, why can't we have the same thing? And who am I, who are any of us, um, especially outsiders, to say, no, that's, that's, that's immoral, that's unethical, you can't have that. Um, what I can say is that um, you've tried, like, 
let's let's go back to 1993. Let's go back to Oslo, okay? The Palestinian attempt during Oslo was to establish a Palestinian state, okay? Um, Oslo is dead. Um, the institutions that Oslo created have survived. And so what we have is a Palestinian authority and Hamas in Gaza um, it, 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 who, who, who lack political control. Neither of those two groups are in control of the land that they are in theory or apparently in charge of, okay? Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority. Um, you know, when, when Mahmoud Abbas wants to travel from Ramallah to uh, Bethlehem or from Ramallah to Nablus, guess who needs to approve that travel? Israel, okay? When uh, Palestinian Authority, when Mahmoud Abbas wants to travel to Jordan, guess who has to approve that travel? Israel, okay? Um, the Palestinian Authority is part of Israel, okay? It's part of Israel's occupation of, of the West Bank. The, the Israel's occupation of the West Bank would not be possible if it not were for the Palestinian Authority. Um, and so th- this idea that Palestinians are going to achieve national self-determination within the Bantu stands that Israel has allowed them self-autonomy within is absurd. I mean, go 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 to the streets of Tel Aviv or, or, or Haifa or Beersheba or anywhere in Israel and and ask people, like um, whether or not they want, they're going to give up control of the West Bank. The answer is no. It's never going to happen. Okay, the Israel will never uh, withdraw the 700,000 Palestinian uh, Israeli settlers in the West Bank. They're never going to rip out uh, hundreds of miles of Israeli-only bypass roads. They're never going to give Palestinians control of the groundwater. They're never going to give Palestinians control of the airspace. They're never going to give Palestinians control of the Jordan Valley. That was clear. Uh, um, in, in the 2000 Camp David Accords, that was clear. In the Omer plan, that was clear. In, in the Netanyahu plans, it will, be, it will only become clear in the future that Israel is entrenching itself in the West Bank to a point of, beyond, um, uh, to a point of, of, of no return. And so once Palestinians realize that, they will realize that the national aspirations that they, may, they have and that, honestly, I, I, I don't blame them for having. Um, and maybe you might even say are, are, are legitimate in, in a world of nation states where all nations have, have the rights of states. In a world where that exists and where, that, and where Israel has a Jewish nation state and where Serbia has a, has a Serbian nation state, I don't, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not calling them unethical for wanting that. What I'm saying is that they will realize eventually that it is in their own best political, economic, religious, cultural interests to reject the Palestinian state because Israel will never let them have it. And I think the, the sooner they come to that realization – um, the better off they'll be. Thanks. We are. Uh, we have one more super chat here. Oh, oh, is that... we do conclusions. I, I've yeah, yeah. We're we're gonna. I'm just gonna read. Actually, let's do conclusions, and then because this next super chat is a question, then we're gonna go to audience questions. Sounds great. I have. Wait. I'm all. Oh, here's my conclusion. All right. About 20 years ago, there was a series of Nike commercials featuring the woman soccer legend Mia Hamm playing games and sports against Michael Jordan. The commercial had a theme song, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, I Can Do Anything Better Than You. Like Mia Hamm and Michael Jordan, Zionism and Palestinianism are in direct competition with one another. But the theme song playing in the background goes a little different. Anything you can do, I can do worse. I can do anything worse than you. I, as an infantryman uh, and a reservist, have witnessed firsthand the excesses, cruelties, and absurdities of Zionism. But Palestinianism is no better 
and in many ways worse. Like Zionism, Palestinianism is obsessed with DNA and over the question of whose DNA has cosmic title to the soil. Palestinianism, like Zionism, is preoccupied with its own grievances and is blind, deaf, and numb to the needs and rights of the other. Zionism puts Jews first. Palestinianism puts Palestinians first. Neither is a movement with a universal program. Classical Hasbara says that Zionism is the most moral political ideology in the world with the most moral army in the world. This, of course, is ridiculous, and I know firsthand from my army service. Israel is not the most moral state in the world, but neither does it have to be. To borrow a wonderful expression from chess, Zionism is fine. In chess, being fine means that you hold an okay position. You aren't winning, but neither are you losing. The game is headed to a draw. Israel is eh, average, and Zionism is fine. You don't have to be a Zionist to support the continued existence of the state of Israel. All you must do is recognize that three and only three possibilities exist regarding the future of the conflict. One, a continuation of the status quo. Two, the two-state solution. Three, hurricane force five violence. Nonviolence is insufficient to return the Palestinian refugees. If you believe that Israel will never give up the settlements, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that Israel will give up the settlements and will give up the rest of itself. I, I want to read a profound quote from Michael Newman, professor of philosophy at a university of Canada, in Canada, excuse me. Newman is an anti-Zionist. He writes, though Israel is an illegitimate state, it should not be destroyed. The cure of destruction is worse than the disease of illegitimate existence. In practice, wiping out a powerful state like Israel or the United States would cause even more suffering than letting it survive. This stance might be called pragmatic anti-Zionism. In the future, it will grow as people realize that Palestinian safety, Palestinian safety and well-being depends on the continued existence of Israel as a Jewish state. In conclusion of conclusion, the Talmud reports that the schools of Hillel and Shammai held a debate for some two and a half years about the justice of humankind. The school of Shammai held that it would have been better for humans to never have been created. The school of Hillel held that it would have been better for humans to have been created. In the end, the assembly took a vote and declared the school of Shammai victor. But the assembly realized that there was a problem. Humankind was already here. So they amended their resolution, saying it would have been better for humankind to never have been created. But now that humans are here, let them examine their future actions. Israel's past is past. Its justice lies in the future. Thank you, Zach corner zach foster the floor is yours cool well i'll just summarize a few a few quick thoughts here which are that um first of all there's a very simple way to guarantee jewish safety and security from for now and until forever and that is by looking around and asking yourselves where in the world are jews the safest and the answer to that question is Jews are safe, Jews are secure, Jews are prosperous in countries where Jews are treated equally to everyone else, in countries where Jews have equal rights as everyone else does, in countries where uh, 
human rights are respected in countries that are democratic, in countries that have separation of powers, in countries um, that uh, um, that allow all citizens to vote. So that, that, that's the first point. And, and, and if you ask yourself, um, is Israel one of those countries? The answer is no. So um, very, very simply, there is no state in the world endangering Jews more so than the state of Israel. And um, so for those of you who believe that Jews need are, are going to face anti-Semitism now and in the future. The key to, to unlocking Jewish safety and security is by uh, promoting human rights and equal rights for everyone inside Israel and Palestine. That, that's the first point I want to make. The second point is this question of one state, two state, three state, how to solve the problem. And the, the point I want to make here is that it is completely irrelevant completely irrelevant how many states there are between the river and the sea, okay? There could be one state, there could be two states, there could be 10 states. It is irrelevant. What is relevant is that all states between the river and the sea respect human rights, that that all states between the river and the sea allow people who fled their homes during a time of war, be it the the 2021 May War, or be it the 1948 War, or the 1967 War, that they allow those uh, refugees to return to their homes, it is imperative that all states, one, two, three, ten states between the river and the sea, uh, allow every single person living within their state uh, the right to vote. Um, and so, I, 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 again, I want to emphasize that um, the, the, the number of states between the river and the sea is irrelevant. And again, the, the last point I would make here is that um, how do you solve all of these pressing issues uh, of, of, of the conflict, the refugees, the borders, the settlements, uh, the water um we have precedent, we have international law, we have human rights law, international human rights law. I think people forget how critical, how revolutionary these concepts are for centuries, for millennia. Human beings have been at war with one another. If you go back and read about the 16th century, the 17th century wars, okay, if you go back and read about the Ottoman conquest, if you go back and read about the conquest of the United States, these were gruesome periods of human history, okay? The Holocaust, World War II, gruesome period of human history. And what came out of these centuries and centuries of wars and conflicts and, and, and refugee problems was a set of laws that the entire international community has accepted as legitimate. And the key to solving all of these problems and the conflicts are known. They're known. And, um, and, and you really just have to look to the international laws that provide guidance for what to do in cases where you have refugees, what to do in cases where you have occupations, um, what to do in cases where you have border disputes. And I think if we can accept those principles, like all countries in the world have accepted, we'll have a pathway forward to to solving the the Israel-Palestine question. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Zach. This this is great. great. Thank you, Adar. I'm gonna have to say uh, the winner of this debate was Zach. For sure. No, absolutely. Well said. Well said. You know, when, when I um, when I made a post on on Instagram promoting this debate, I said something about two Jews named Zach, and one of our community members, Grace, who's actually been on the show, she said, two Jews named Zach is an excellent name for a podcast." Mm. I think hey. you two should should maybe start something. Um, I'll take a a ten percent shidduch uh, matchmaking. No, but honestly, in in all honesty, even if you guys want to do something on a more regular basis here on Sulcha, I think you two both have a very interesting perspective, bring a lot to the table. Um, 
So let me know, and we could we could make this more of a regular thing. I definitely I definitely enjoyed it. We'll do Thank some you. we'll do some audience questions. And by the way, uh, audience, if anybody wants to get in touch with Zach or Zach, you could find their contact information in the description, uh, and um, you know they'd be happy to interact. So we have a so we're going to try to get to as many questions as possible. Of course, we're going to prioritize super chats, but we will do our best to get to all of them. Uh, from Shaila V, Shai, thank you for the fifteen shekels. What do you think of Lapid's new definition of anti-Semitism? So I, I don't know. I, I didn't see or hear that, so I can't comment. Did anybody hear about that? I'm not familiar with uh, any new definitions of anti-Semitism from Yair Lapid, no. Okay. Can you elaborate um, on I'm looking yeah, I, I asked to get. Part. I asked to get a link. Let's see. Netanyahu accuses Lapid of minimizing concept of anti-Semitism. Jerusalem Post, July fifteenth, twenty twenty-one. Oh, then I support. Then I support Lapid's uh, definition. <laughs> I was gonna say I was gonna make a similar uh, a similar comment. That's funny. Oh man. Yeah. Um, the foreign minister on Wednesday compared anti-Semitism to other racial and political hatreds and said that anti-Semitism was quote the family name of hate. I mean, as, I, as if it's like one of the most historic uh, forms of, of hate, most historic. Okay, interesting. I mean, I, I can share one thought, which is that, you know, anti-Semitism has been on the rise here for many years now, for, uh, you know, and, and I think in order to understand why anti-Semitism is on the rise, you have to understand as well, by the way, that all forms of hate speech, all, uh, um, uh, hate speech, again, anti-black racism in Europe, um, you know, anti-black racism in the U.S., a transphobia, uh, Islamophobia, all of these things have been on the rise for years now. Anti-Semitism is no exception. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. We, we could get into those. I'm not sure now is the, is the right time or place to do that. But um, I, I just think it's worth noting that there's actually nothing particularly special or exceptional about the rise of anti-Semitism over the past, say, five to ten years. Yeah, so there are multiple anti-Semitisms, even within the left. I, by my count, there are three different left-wing anti-Semitisms. There's anti-Semitism on the right, anti-Semitism in our region here. I'll say, because I imagine the question is asking, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? Hopefully when my book comes out, this is what I'm working on. Let me say for all those who say that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, if it is anti-Semitism, you have to admit that it's a very different form of anti-Semitism than past anti-Semitism. I mean, you have Dua Lipa, Bella Hadid, posting pictures of dead Gazan children. Now, you have to think that their anti-Semitism is different than the anti-Semitism of Adolf Eichmann, even if you say that they are anti-Semitic. They're anti-Semitic in a much more abstract way. Their anti-Semitism, if it is anti-Semitism, is much more hidden. And that's why I like to say, I'm a little cheeky here, that anti-Zionism is a Kabbalistic form of anti-Semitism because it is hidden, it is abstract. And most of the people who are anti-Zionist, again, if they are anti-Semitic, they don't even realize that. And you don't have that in anti-Semitism's past. The Fuhrer, Pharaoh, the Church Fathers, they knew that they were anti-Semites. Their anti-Semitism was explicit. Anti-Zionism is implicit. The old anti-Zionism, excuse me, the old anti-Semitism was the anti-Semitism of language. The new anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, is an anti-Semitism of silence. So be very careful. There's a lot you have to work through there. 
Adar, if I have, if I, if I can just have one, one quick minute, unless you want to go to another question. No, no, you could, you could. I mean, I, I when when Zach took the position that it is anti-Semitism, that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. I know we just opened up a whole new can of worms, so we'll we'll touch on it briefly, and then we'll we'll continue. So just a quick point here, which is that um, you know if. if you know, are some anti-Zionists anti-Semites? Obviously, do anti-Semites exploit anti-Zionism to cover up their bigotry? Obviously, but is opposing Zionism anti-Semitism? Well, I mean, let me rephrase that. Am I an anti-Semite? Is Avraham Berg, former speaker of the Israeli Knesset, is he an anti-Semite? Is Naomi Klein, Noam Chomsky, are they also anti-Semites? Okay, I would never call you. You're far too likable a person to call an anti-Semite. I don't go around calling people anti-Semites. At worst, you have some anti-Semitic beliefs, but I don't get into that. And yes, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism real quick. Just, just, just two things very quick. One, as I spoke about, the collective accusation. Anti-Semitism makes a collective accusation. Going back to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said that the Jews are a danger. All the Jews are a danger. Going back to Jesus, all Jews killed him. And the blood, the, the, the blood guilt of Jesus is inherited from parent to child, much like the idea of settler colonialism. Hitler, too, famously, right? And the Nazis. The Jewish race is guilty. So you have this collective accusation. And then the other reason why it's anti-Semitic, I believe, is because of the violence, the potential for violence. If a catastrophic event happens in the 21st century, 100,000 Jewish casualties, plus irrecoverable damage, where does that happen? You know that that does not happen in America. That could happen here in Israel. Look, there's a data point. I think you have to be a little more modest. There's a data point, a very important data point that's missing. What happens when the refugees return? What does that society look like? Does it look like South Africa? Or does it look like Algeria? We don't know. Should I should I chime in on this one? Or? Please chime. Chime away. Look, I mean... I... The way I view it, generally people who are anti-Zionist, they're not actually saying Jews don't deserve self-determination. They're not looking at uh, the theoretically that Jews deserve self-determination. What they're looking at is what Zionism has meant in practice. They're looking at political Zionism, how it, how it has justified displacement and a continued expansion and occupation. So anti-Zionists are looking at what Zionism has meant in practice while Jews are just saying we deserve the right to self-determination. So I view it more so than anything as just having two slightly separate conversations. But I think that if you're a Palestinian, being anti-Zionist is the obvious conclusion of, of living your life. So we, we can't frame that as anti-Semitic. It's just, uh, A, I think it dilutes the, the meaning of, of anti-Semitism, but it also gets hinders important discourse with their Palestinian brothers and sisters because we're we're framing them as anti-Semitic instead of understanding why they're going to be anti-Zionist, which obviously they would be. So I I don't like the framing anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. I think it could be, but it's not inherently. Yeah, well, I mean, one last thought to share on this point is that, I mean, historically there's been very little uh, correlation between uh, people who are Zionists and people who are uh, anti-Semites, right? Like um, many European anti-Zionists first supported Hitler, Hitler uh, sorry, excuse me, first supported Herzl, Herzl Zionism, because they wanted to rid Europe of, of, of its alien and filthy Jews, right? Like Hitler's greatest Zionist, uh, uh, this, this appointment made by Hassan Mahdi, Arthur Balfour sponsored legislation to keep Jews 
uh, Jewish refugees out of the UK. Okay, so and, and even today, if you look around the world, who are the world's uh, leading um, anti-Semites? Many of them, by the way, are Zionists. Look at Donald Trump. Look at Viktor Orban. Look at Steve Bannon. These people are all Zionists, and 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 I, I think it's hard to describe Steve Bannon as someone who's friendly to the Jews. In fact, he, if you look in, into his writings, many many layers of anti-Semitism in, in the in the works of people who are very prominent Zionists today. So this idea that uh, Jews uh, that anti-Semitism and, uh, is is anti-Zionism is is totally absurd. It's uh, it's honestly defamatory to people who, who like myself, uh, Jews like myself who believe deeply in, in Jewish spirituality and connection and are also opposed to a, a political movement that um, is, 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 as Adara correctly stated, displacing and, and occupying and besieging Palestinians. So, um, Yeah, I get it. It's an abstract anti-Semitism because it's not anti-Semitic in its intent. It, it's, and that's why my book, when it eventually comes out, The Anti-Semitism of Love, you, you, you love the Palestinians, and you claim you love the Jews, and, and and I believe you. But again, if the end result, and this is a legitimate if, is you know, 350,000 Jewish casualties and a reduction of the population of Israel to 2 million. I mean, who cares if that's anti-Semitic? Not, there's a tremendous danger here. There's an historical danger. And, and that is really what I'm getting at when I say it's anti-Semitism. Do I dismiss people who hold anti-Zionist views? No, because their views are very complex. I think it's wrong to dismiss people uh, uh, like that. But but there is a huge danger here. There's a collective accusation, and, and our past history has told us to watch out for those two things. So, Zach, is it fair to say that while you do believe anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, you don't see the value in just tweeting that as if you made it like a good argument? I will never tweet that. I will never okay. tweet that. It's not a good argument. I mean, it's, it's just it's one of the it's one of the funniest tweets that you'll just see all over the place as if it's like a major win. But it 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 does it does nothing to progress discourse. So that that's one of the tweets I, I uh, like, Zach, I, I appreciate your your explanation and, and the nuance sure. you provided to it. Um, yep. So Matthew K goes one of the best debates on Sulha so far. So that's testament to, to Zach and Zach. Let's see. Um, I saw another super chat real quick. Matthew K, $2. Thank you, Matthew. Thoughts on the impact of the new Israeli coalition will have? What do you all think? Uh, well, look, the, the, the big test will be if the budget can pass. Right. Once the budget passes, then you, you might say that the government is relatively secure and and so it'll it'll survive the, the, the test of a few months. It just survived the big I mean, the, the, the vote of confidence that just passed right just a couple of days ago. That was a big test. It passed. I think there's great desire among all members of the coalition um, for this government to survive. And as long as there is that will, and it's clear there is that will, the government will survive. There's just so much, there's so little desire to go back to another election that um, I do have, uh, and so I think in, in just in a general sense for, for Israelis who have no interest in going to the polls for a, what, a fifth time in a year and a half or whatever it is, um, I think that's that's a positive development. But look, in terms of the, the core issues of, of, of occupation and siege, 
and, and ethnic cleansing and apartheid, obviously nothing will change. If anything, um, the government has signaled its desire to continue to uh, besiege Gaza, to continue the ethnic cleansing campaigns in Silwan. We saw just last week that uh, houses were continually being destroyed in Silwan. Um, and we'll probably see the same uh, in, in, in Beitar, uh, just in Beitar in, in northern West Bank, north of Nablus. We're, we're, we're seeing continued violence against Palestinian protesters protesting the dis, their own displacement and uh, control o- over their land. So in terms of the core issues of the conflict, every, uh, you know, th- things will progress as they have been. But at the very least, you can say that there, there's some hope within Israel, within Israel proper, not Israel 48, um, for, say, some political progress. Yeah, all the human rights violations that Foster describes are a total embarrassment and, you know, they don't help me sleep at night. Um, I'll say that stopping settlements, stopping is is not where we are. Um, I'm a centrist Israeli, or I don't know, you'd call me a leftist. I, I voted for merits very proudly. I, I'm also a, a reserve Nick. Uh, I'm a refuse Nick for reserves. They called me. I said, uh, uh, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. Though they, they never actually called me, so it didn't matter. Look, Israeli moderates like myself, who believe in two states, who believe in human rights, um, who believe that Zionism has to be based on human rights, there was only one possible um, outcome, only one possible positive outcome, and that was to dethrone the wicked king, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. That happened. We'll see how long that goes on for. Um, look, I was very excited that Abbas, uh, um, you know, Mansour, I definitely buy him a shawarma. It looks like he enjoys shawarma, so I was very excited uh, that he joined the government. And, um, you know, hopefully it can provide a model for Palestinian citizens. I mean, there's a lot of talk at Tel Aviv University. Uh, I forgot to mention, I'm, I'm representing two uh, institutions unofficially. Uh, one is Tel Aviv University. The other is Oceanside Jewish Center, uh, Oceanside, New York, Long Island. I'm bar mitzvah class of 03. I should have said that at the beginning. I'm sorry. But anyway, there's a lot of talk at Tel Aviv University around Palestinian pragmatic participation um, you know, I met a lot of the Palestinian students here. A lot of them are my friends. They don't really care about the conflict. They, they just want to live good lives. Um, and it's really exciting to, to see them in politics. And I hope the joint list uh, uh, joins up. But right now, the only thing we can worry about is getting rid of Bibi Netanyahu. You're not going to see any progress whatsoever or very minimal progress on the settlements. I'll just say in, in conclusion, Naftali Bennett, I don't agree with him. I don't agree with his views. He's very confused. He puts national rights before human rights, and, and that's something that that I, I obviously don't second. But I will say that Naftali Bennett is a better person than Bibi Netanyahu. He's not as cynical, he's not as racist, um, and he's, he's, he's much more open, I think, to pragmatic accommodation with Arabs, both within Israel and outside of Israel. So Naftali Bennett at the premiership is a huge improvement over, uh, over uh, Bibi. And, and just to add to that, thus far, his rhetoric is far less divisive than what Bibi's was, which is something that for me is like inexcusable for a leader to have to like demonize certain um, segments of the population. Uh, Adi Harongi asks, thanks for the question. The question of Foster, you said during the debate that Gaza is occupied in order to prove occupation, you must prove control militarily and politically. This is not the situation in Gaza. Yeah, I think I addressed this. Uh, <clears throat> um, perhaps people recall Mavi Marmara back in, was it 2000? I don't even remember, 2011, 12, 13, somewhere in there. Um, what happened to Mavi Marmara? It was um, besieged by uh, the, the Israeli Navy and um, 
and, and multiple people on board were killed. Why? Because uh, because Israel controls Gaza. If Gaza controlled Gaza, then they would have been allowed to pass through because Gaza would be in control of its uh, of its coastline. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's really a debate. No one seriously debates whether or not Israel is is, is in, in control of Gaza. Israel controls the population registry. If you move, if, if a Palestinian Gaza moves from Khan Yunis to Gaza City, Israel knows about it, okay? Israel um, has uh, a record of every birth, every death, every marriage certificate, every divorce. Israel controls the uh, the, air, the airspace. Israel controls the sea. Israel controls the groundwater. Um, this is a uh, very clear uh, uh, clearly falls within the uh, definition of, of a military occupation um, within it's a, a, a great analogy is like a prison. Okay. It's like Israel controls the walls within the prison. There's an internal system. It would be like saying, you know, we're, we're going to retreat to the to outer walls of the prison. We're going to let the prisoners control what happens, what goes out inside the prison. That is what's happening in Gaza. But obviously you would always say all the people in the prison are still prisoner, just like all the people in, in Gaza are still being occupied. Thank you, Zach. Um, Yoel is asking, and I imagine it's with cynicism or sarcasm, would Zach Foster like Israel to cut off the water and electricity? <laughs> I'm not really sure how to respond to that. Um, well, I guess in response to Israel now controls the water, so what would you prefer that, that we don't provide any? No, you, you, you want them to have full full control over over their resources and borders, which That's Jews right. just view that as an invite for them to further militarize and, and attack Israel. That's why, you know, like it, obviously, obviously, Gazans should be free, right? Like they should not be living under blockade. But and and most Israelis aren't happy about about Gaza suffering in any way shape or form but when they think about it they're like okay look it's either they suffer or we potentially die okay well i'm going to choose me over them and and really if we look at a lot of a lot of the challenges we have in this conflict and p- perhaps most conflicts it really just comes to each group valuing themselves and their well-being over the well-being of of their enemy um we we're going to value our, of ourselves over people who aren't our enemy um, people who we just don't know, but definitely over our enemy. So, so th- this is really, this is really the the hard part. How do we instill humanist values and find a, a humanist solution when both sides, understandably so, are valuing themselves so far, so far greater than they do the other side? That's why we're here. That's why we're having this conversation. Um, okay, we'll do I guess one more, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, let's see. Let's see. If you guys see any questions you you want to address in the chat, is there a, a question about cutting off Benjamin Netanyahu's water and electricity? <laughs> I'll take that question. You know, Zach, it's interesting because you you said you proudly voted for Meretz, but like according to many people's standards, that would make you like a far leftist. Um, the left built the country. Since when did leftists become a bad thing? The left built the country. Look, a lot of people, unfortunately, in Israel are so far right that they think that anything left to them is like uh, uh, Ilhan Omar. I am a proud Zionist and I'm a proud Jew. And I believe and I, I've, I've contributed. I'm trying to contribute, you know, through the military with my ideas. I, to call me a traitor, I, I just won't have any of it. I won't have any of it. 
I mean, I think this is part of the irony, right? That, you know, Zach, I, I, it sounds like you grew up in New Jersey. Um, I, I, Long Island. Right? You didn't hear my shout out to my, my Long, congregation? Long Island. Sorry. I'm, I had the I'm, shout I'm, out I'm, to I'm where my boys was from. Hear. You don't tell me. I know you went to Princeton. You don't know that I. I, I grew up in Michigan. You grew up in Long Island. I don't think it's a coincidence that you, you voted for Merits and I would vote for, I don't know, Hadash or Ballet or, you know, right. one of those parties. But, um, but that because we grew up in an environment where where uh, you know human rights are valued, uh, equal rights are valued, and so yeah, you, you know you're an outcast in Israel. I mean, how many votes did Merritt get in the last election? I mean, I'm surprised you guys even got on the ballot. It's deeper than that. Look, we grew up going to school with a diverse population, with African Americans, with Hispanics, with um, you know, with Irish and Italian, and that is where. That is where human rights comes from. Certainly doesn't come from the Torah, I'll tell you that much. Israeli Jews and Palestinians only grow up among other Palestinians and Israeli Jews. Okay, You know, Palestinians grow up with Palestinians. Israeli Jews grow up with Israeli Jews. And so they value their nation over humanity. There is no, and I know Adar is into this stuff, there is no such thing as a species conscious. That is not natural. The species conscious is an invention of modernity and it's not doing so well in the world. Nationalism is the basis of people's affairs. The individual and humanity, those are modern inventions. Those are very precious things. But, you know, you, you talk about, there are no Jews living in in, uh, in Gaza. There are no Jews living in the West Bank. You say, oh, we're, we're an apartheid state, but we have Palestinians around. I interact with them every day. We see them. You know, I saw some little cute boy going into the mall. Of course, when you only interact with soldiers, you're going to hate them. But when, you you know, you see a little cute boy with his overalls on speaking Arabic, you're going to like him. Palestinians don't have that experience with Israeli Jews. There are no Israeli Jews. There's no Chabad house. There's no mezuzah. There's nobody to wish Rosh Hashanah to in September. There's no Hanukkah lighting in December. That is a big problem in Palestinian society. And again, it's something that you guys are just not really willing to touch. I'm sorry. That was so. That was aggressive for the end. I don't like that. I apologize. I like him too much. Yeah, and, and I know and, that we were such a sour note. Huh? I know that. I'm, that was terrible for me. That was exactly just, just, just so good. Just, just, my father warned me against this, and I. One final point here is that look, the Palestinians are now facing not just Israeli occupation, but they're facing oppression from the part of the Palestinian Authority. And of course, in Gaza, they're facing oppression from the Hamas government as well. If you're a Christian in, in Gaza, your life is, you, you are unequal, okay? You do not have the same rights that Muslims have. If you are a, uh, a Palestinian uh, subject to the authority of the Palestinian Authority, you, you are not, uh, you do not have basic human rights. I mean, Nizad Banat was, was, was ruthlessly, was beat to death by the Palestinian Authority. I mean, we don't know the exact cause of, of the death, but I mean, he died in Palestinian Authority custody. Palestinians are faced with multiple layers. And so I think, um, you know, Palestinians are very critical of, of, of their own um, of their own governments, certainly in, 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 to the extent that they're able to. I mean, they face repression, not just from Israel, but from their own governments. And we're starting to see now, uh, just in the past few weeks, regular daily protests throughout the West Bank against the Palestinian Authority. So I think what I would say is we they are quite critical uh, of themselves, of their own governments. And, you know, I think that I think that's what we're going to see in the, in the coming months and years is. Palestinians are going to start to, to to ask very very difficult questions of their own government, and I and I don't think the governments are going to respond very effectively. And so I do think we will see um, what we saw in the rest of the Arab world. We will see also in Palestine in the years to come. So I'm I'm optimistic. Inshallah.
We shall see. Great. Um, look, by, by the way, Chad, uh, by and large respectful, I did I did do a few timeouts to people. Uh, guys, listen, whoever's going to engage in personal task, attacks, whether it's with one another or with any of our guests, I'm, I'm just going to breather you. You're going to be on a five-minute breather um, to really, you know, think about your actions before engaging in, in insults. We're better than that. The internet, by and large, is a or social media platforms are by and large a toxic cesspool. Really, there's so much negativity, so much hate. We're trying to build something different here. So yeah, we're, we're going to moderate it. We, we are pretty much open to the wide spectrum of views and opinions, but you know, express it in a way that's not intentionally inflammatory and don't engage in personal attacks. We don't ask for much, but that's really the reason for, um, for a lot of these breathers. I guess we'll take this one just kind of to laugh at it a little bit. Tenet Gigi goes, this is true. Everywhere leftists want to destroy every country they live in, USA, France, Israel. They advocate to bring in murderers into every society. That's one of the, it's a very nuanced. Yeah, that's not true. Foster uh, wants to destroy a country he doesn't live in. <laughs> no, it's just, I, I found that to be funny. You know, there's actually an interesting case to be made that it's the capitalists that want open borders because open borders provide cheap labor. And that's, that's what capitalists want. It's true that in America you have like Republicans are, are the, the more capitalist party and they want closed borders, but the true capitalists like the Koch brothers, they're, they're happy to have open borders because that, that lowers labor costs. So just to change a little bit of, of your, how you, you view the current left, right paradigm, which I suggest we try to evolve beyond because most things cannot be summed up with, with left, right. Sometimes we use it because it's the best way we can describe something, but we should try to transcend that, that language. Um, anyways, uh, Zach and Zach, any final thoughts before we, we wrap it up? Well, it's been, what, two hours? Look, look I, Adar, appreciate you bringing us on. Um, I enjoyed this conversation and would be always happy to come back. And thanks for facilitating, Zach. Thanks for, as well to you. Uh, you. You're put in a position of having to def defend uh, um, some very difficult uh, um, decisions and policies of, of the government of Israel. And so, um, you know, um, th thanks, for, thanks for coming on as well. Thanks a lot, Adar. I wanted to thank the chat. Also, Zachary Foster heard some new things tonight and definitely have to go back to the drawing board and, and think about what I heard and, and try to come up with answers. And, um, uh, you know, I'll be messaging you on Twitter. So look out for that, me. That, that's what we're here to do. Uh, thank you so much. Before we go, Aaron asks, is, it, is there an audio version? Yeah, this is on Spotify and, and iTunes and all those. You can find a link tree in the description. You can find all our links there. Um, and that's it. Thank you all, friends. Oh, listen, whoever wants, uh, we're going to do an after party in Discord. I don't maybe our guests are already uh, tired, but whoever wants, the conversation will continue in the lounge on Discord. I'm going to drop a link right now. If you want to join, you join our Discord on the left-hand side. It says lounge, click lounge, and you'll be connected. It's a voice session. You don't need to speak, but you can if you want to. You can just listen as well. Um, there we go. Um, and and Zach, Zach Corner, Zach Foster, if you want to join it. Oh, wait, no, I just shared the YouTube. Whoops, wrong link. If either of you want to join, uh, I'm sure our community members would love to speak to you. If not, um, next time. Signing out, friends. Great. Thanks so much.